The Dark Art Society podcast covers a variety of important and contemporary issues, including dark art as well as other kinds of art, literature, film, music, also culture, philosophy, dreams, paranormal experiences, magic, and a whole lot more than that. I'm Mike Carell, director of Chet's Art, I Like to Paint Monsters, and you are listening to the Dark Art Society podcast, hosted by renowned artist Chet Zar. That's our new theme song. We're going to change the theme song. No, that was, I totally straight up, I, I straight up went into 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. I don't even you know, know what that is. Sesame Street. I oh. sent you the video <laughs> oh, okay, for one okay. time because they do the five and they right. go, five. It flies around the track <laughs> oh, and it's like a pinball machine. Okay, this is way off subject. Sorry, okay. guys. We started that a little bizarre. How are you doing, Mike? I know you I'm just did show. some mowing. So you must be tired <laughs> and sweaty. I did three hours of mowing. Sure, and my Jeez. armpits do stink. Damn. I could have used without that information, but I just assumed. <laughs> I am in the middle of a hellstorm of painting for the my show the fear at copro oh my god i thought i just it gets worse every time like i get more i have to do more and less time every time it's like i'm waiting for the hump where's the hump i need the hump to get over to where it's kind of a little better than last time. You just than need worse. you need more positive titles for your shows because it's like, of course, it's going to be hardcore if your show's called The Fear. The one before that was Dystopia. That sounds <laughs> terrifying, you know. I mean, Ego Death was probably a little better just because it was a more positive uh, title. It's maybe not, next time, it, maybe next time we should call it like Daffodils and Daisies, and maybe it'll just no. be the smoothest ride you ever had. No, it's not the fear. It's the workload. It's the it's the it's the it's the pain. You know, it's the pain the of the, pain. the, the, the 18 hour days and the, the lack of sleep. Oh, my God. Anyway. Anyway, let's get and here's the thing is that he's been saying this to me now as long as I, I know, know him. And, he's, and he always says, he's like, why do I keep doing this to myself? <laughs> and then every year he does it again. He's a glutton for punishment. I was trying as you would say to me, you would say, because, Chet, that's how you like to play the game. <laughs> look, look, I tried to take this look. year off. <laughs> I was going to take a solo my solo show off this year. And then. Gary said, if you do a show, I can get you uh, an article in Juxtapose. So I'm like, okay, it's been a long time since I had an article in Juxtapose. So for that, I will do it. And we'll keep it a small show. I'll be in the small room. And there's the Guillermo del Toro uh, group uh, tribute show in the big gallery. So that's Ooh, a perfect. Who's curating that? Uh, a guy named Chogren. He did the last one. Mm. And uh, the one at Gallery 1988, and uh, so I thought that's you know these these reasons are good enough to do it, and then and now. But I'm, there was also that you're leaving out the fact that you also wanted to throw down for ILTPM on on the Juxtapose magazine, and that that was also a motivator. Oh yeah, for sure. It's just good promotion all around for everything. For yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the. Get I'm just. I, this, this is my subtle reminder to you. See, it's I'm not glad even, you said that because I could have back padding. The, the interview is supposed to happen any day now, and I could have totally forgotten that. You better not forget. We. I, I pounded that into your head, but it's been three months. I know how that goes <laughs> for you. Yeah. So anyway, I'm in. I'm in hell right now, and it's so frustrating because the paintings are so good and so much fun. They should be so much fun, and I'm like getting only 10 percent of the fun 
because the 90% <laughs> is like pure exhaustion and pushing and pushing. And it's like, oh. but here's the thing is that it's like you're, you're imbuing them with that sensation that you're racked with while you're painting them. I know you don't think about it that way, but it's like th- how you, that translates the vibrations in your body are going to be different. If you're racked with exhaustion, which is going to cause you to paint differently, which is going to translate to the outcome being differently. So you're imbuing them with the sense of these feelings that they're supposed to be expressing. If the show's called the fear and it's about dystopia, yeah, yeah, I know. But it's still, I wish it would be, I wish I could do it in a little slightly more leisurely way. It would be so wanna, much more enjoyable. I want to commission Dave McDowell to do a painting of you flogging yourself, but they're like paintbrushes on the, on the ends, you know, and you're like, you know, you're like bowing forward and you're down all low and you've got the canvas in front of you, the half done monster on it. And you're whipping yourself across the back with like a cat of nine tails, except for the ends are these paintbrushes. That's a good idea. And your back's all like bloody and striped, but it's really probably just paint, you know, That's a good like idea. you even have like a little like paint jar on the side. that's like red paint or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, that'd be great. That's dude. a good idea. If you're listening, Dave McDowell, get on that shit. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so this episode, we're going to talk about my time in the film industry because that is something that people ask me a lot about. And that I don't. Pregnant pause. Was I so, don't. You know, today, <laughs> we're going to talk about my. And then there's this pause, and I'm like, don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> time just, in the film industry <laughs> well you know i don't i don't talk about it that often so uh <laughs> what are you laughing at i don't even get it i'm sorry there are people that are listening that will <clears throat> so okay I, I'm gonna i don't <laughs> this is like i know that's fine he, you're a four stroker i'm a two stroker that's what she said <laughs> let's move along so i used to interview chet a, a great deal actually that was i think how we became friends was him having to suffer under the hot seat pressure of mike carell's interviewing skills and even though this is digital, I'm still able to see you. So off we go. I, you know, I, I think one of the best stories and what I think people would like to hear about is your breakout from high school into the film industry. And, you know, how did that actually even happen? First of all, how did this high school kid from San Pedro or San Pedro, as San they Pedro. would say here, no, no, get, get there, you know, <laughs> and then what was your first, uh, I, I mean, I know what your first big job was, but I think people would like to hear about that because okay. it's pretty exciting stuff. Okay. Well, um, it all started around 1979, I think it was, somewhere around there. I know I was 12 years old when I sculpted my first mask and started to get completely obsessed with makeup effects. Like, I was always an art kid, drawing, sculpting, and all that stuff, into horror movies, into horror comics, <clears throat> into weird stuff. And um, I, I saw The, the Howling the movie, the howling, mm-hmm. the original howling and oh, yeah. Dawn, Dawn of the dead, the original Dawn of the dead. And those were the two ones that I just was like, Whoa, how do they do that? How do they do those effects? Just were so amazing to me at the time. And I just was like, I got to learn how to do this. And so I started, uh, yeah, I was messing with makeup before that actually come to think of it because I, I, I remember a friend of mine, I know I've mentioned this before, maybe on the podcast, but a friend of mine's father was a a nurse, I think, at a hospital, and he had a shoebox full of makeup supplies and a little pamphlet on how to do uh, wound simulations for Mm -hmm. emergency situations to where they're training other nurses or something like that. And Mm. so, so I had a little. It was a little shoe, little blue shoebox, and it had a little Stein's makeup. Uh, pamphlet on how to do a broken nose, black eyes, burns with latex and tissue paper. And that may have been a little bit before that time that I started getting interested in that stuff. 
Um, it could have been around the same time. But anyway, that was kind of the first stuff I started messing with. And then I saw those movies. Then I got a pitcher, a plastic water pitcher and some clay and I sculpted this piece of shit masks like oh so bad so bad so bad you would think i had no talent whatsoever <laughs> and i but i molded it and i cast it in latex and i had done my first mask and then the second mask was uh phantom of the opera mask and that one was pretty good because that was like okay I, I i can see where it's going it's text skin texture with a sock I turned mm. the sock inside out and i was pushing it in for skin texture nice <laughs> so uh anyway so um you know, it, back then it was like, go to the library, find any books you can find on makeup. And so I, I would just, you know, go to the library, find any makeup books I could find. I was able to get a hold of this one. Oh, I forgot what it's called. It's kind of a famous one that a lot of makeup effects people um, uh, got in the 80s. I forgot the name of it. It was like stage makeup. So there was a bunch of junk in it I wasn't that interested in. But there was also a, a lot of, you know, some stuff on sculpting and molding and did you ever steal books from the library as a kid, or did you always return no, them? No, no, I never did stuff like that. I was way too f- afraid of getting caught. I never, I always followed the rules when I could, if, if, you know, just because I just didn't. Want, I was, you know, m- more afraid of getting caught. I was kind of a chicken, so. But uh, but anyway, anyway, so I knew that this was at that point around twelve, thirteen. I knew this was the the path I would take because I I had grown up, you know, with my stepdad who was a an, an illustrator and a painter, and I knew that. Uh, the the income fluctuation for my family was like up and down. Sometimes we had money, sometimes we had no money, and um, a lot of times we had no money. So, I I just being kind of a pra- pragmatic person, even as a kid, I was thinking, you know, this would be a good career path because I'm sure you can make decent money. And I live in Pedro, which it is San Pedro. If you're a local, <laughs> if you're a local, it's pronounced wrong. <laughs> that, that's that's how you know that you're from Pedro's if you pronounce it wrong. So um, uh, I started really working towards that and and building a portfolio up. So I would take pictures of all my work, my sculptures, and I had this little portfolio. And um, I knew that once I got out of uh, high school, I was going to try and get a job in the industry. And so, and um, if you guys want to see any of that stuff, you guys got it. You guys can watch Chet's R. I like to paint monsters, which I directed about Chet. And there's all kinds of the, the shots he's talking about right now in the film. Right. It's all true. cut together, looking all pretty floating around and stuff. Yep. Yep. Um, so I almost went to Cal arts because my friend Jim Beinke, uh, went there and I had met him when I was 15 and he was 20 at Cal arts through a mutual friend of my brother's. And, uh, he was doing all this cool stuff. Like he did the, uh, the mat, the quiet riot mask for bang your head, that song or metal health or whatever yeah, that yeah, song. He, he did the mask for not the album cover, but for the video. And he was doing like stage productions and lots of like armor and, but it was all sculpting and latex and type stuff. And it was so, so much fun. Um, and then he had, I, I had, you know, even through in high school, I hustled a couple little jobs. Like there was a, a production in the rich neighborhood above us, which is Palos Verdes where the rich kids went to school. They had a production of, um, I think it was the wizard of Oz or something. And I had to do these monkey demon type monkey masks in different colors. I think like it was really, it was like a, a, you know, a take on wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. So I had gotten that little job making masks. I made a strange, uh, 
foam latex woman, like a back of a woman, an adult, but it was like, you know, 14 inches long. And the guy would put his hand or no, the, the actress would put her hand in, in the foam puppet and it would be like nursing at her breast, but it was a, an adult. It was like some weird art Trippy. production that Binky hooked me up with, I think, because it was someone at CalArts, which was all kind of crazy back then. So I got little jobs like that. I did the, uh, he, Binky hired me for the Magic, uh, uh, not Magic Mountain, uh, yeah, Magic Mountain Halloween haunt. Mm-hmm. So I got to work on that. So I was doing stuff at high school and my mom was letting me skip days and driving me up there and stuff. But this is all in that documentary as well. Um, I almost went to CalArts. I had my grant applications. You know, I got, I, I was going to get in for sure. And at the last minute I was like, no, I want to do, I want to get in the film industry. I know I can do this. I live, you know, 45 minutes away from it, from where Hollywood. So I graduated high school then I was too scared to do anything to go and show my portfolio because I was super shy. Um, I was also I took the Dick Smith course. My uh, I asked my my dad, my biological father Richard, if he would pay for me to take this Dick Smith make correspondence course. So I was doing that, and then I took like a year off where I was too scared to show my portfolio, and. A guy named Toby Sells, who's now a uh, a makeup artist in Atlanta, he was. I contacted him through the, uh, or we contacted each other through the course, Dick Smith course. We were both taking it, and he was coming out to L.A. and he asked me if I could drive him around to different shops so that he could show his portfolio. And so I I drove him around, and um, you know, some of the shops, a couple of the shops were like, "Oh, do you have a book too? You know, why don't you let's see your book as well." And so I got to show it to a few, but I was so shy. It was so dumb. You know, I could have, I could have had a, probably had a job a year before if I wasn't such a chicken <laughs> shit. So, um, uh, somewhere in there, I started working at MMI and they sent me to Italy. I don't remember what the, you know, what happened first, but I worked on some movies in Italy, Cellar Dweller and a couple other movies out there. But one the, the 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 my big entrance into the the industry was I met Tony Gardner who had his own little shop. He is a make he's still got a shop going now, and he saw my book when I was showing Toby around, and he called me the next day and hired me. So he I was basically Bam. yeah I was basically his little assistant for whatever he was doing, and he was just kind of doing little molds here and there of things and trying to get some jobs and. I did a weird thing where I sculpted some rotten nipples. I sculpted some <laughs> rotten nipples, I think, for some w- weird horror movie. I forget the name of it. Like this guy, like an Ed Gein chopped off this lady's nipples and they were all rotted and wrinkled. So I did just weird stuff like that. And then um, and then Tony got the blob. The, the Somehow he got that job, which is a really huge job. And he set up a shop and then I started working there doing molds and just whatever needed to be done kind of like the low man on the totem pole and um eventually i they saw that i could paint which is interesting that my first you know my entry into kind of the big leagues of effects was seeing people uh liking my paint jobs which is weird that i'm a painter now more than anything else that was the that was the first of many signs yeah but the weird thing was that was when i first the interesting thing is that's when i first that's around that same time 87 i graduated in 85 
87 right. is the first one I had my big mystical experience with the Ouija board and all that stuff. And the first time mm. I, I tried uh, acid and ecstasy and um, it was around that time. I, cause I remember I would be tripping and I would look at my hand and, and I see all these, this modely looked like modeled airbrush pinks and, and these different tones. I could see, you know, how it is, you can see into things yeah. kind of. Yeah. And I, and I, uh, took that to, I start, I somehow got a chance to paint something on the blob with an airbrush and I used that inspiration from my trip and nice. people in the shop are like, you know, I had, you know, these veteran guys who had been doing it, you know, probably five or more years than me kind of like going, you got to show me how to paint that. You got to show me what you're doing, <laughs> which was crazy. And so then I became the painter for the blob victims crew for that whole show. And I painted oh, cool. just about any, everything on there. And now it's weird too, because that kind of modely painting technique, not that I'm not saying I invented it. I think a lot of people kind of un, came upon it at the same, around the same time, but that's mm -hmm. like a standard for painters now. So it's kind of this, do these modely, you know, airbrushy right, right. paint jobs. So anyway, Tony's shop took off and, and he got dark man and, and I just worked there for like 10 years, it kind of ended up being sort of the art director there and the lead sculptor and, and, and a painter. And yeah, so that was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, for some kid coming out of high school, you know, and, and already knowing at the age of 12 that they were choosing a career path. I mean, I can't, <laughs> I can't even fucking imagine, you know, I mean, I know people that are my age now that don't even know oh, what yeah. their career path is, you know, yeah. I mean, I was one of the luckier ones cause I knew the, what I wanted to do was art and mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to do something to do with it. And as I went along, it all became very clear slowly, right. but surely, you know, but uh, you know, you had kind of a rocket ship experience and it's interesting too, because like when I got out of college, I was like, dude, the last thing I want to do is go and like hustle myself to the entertainment industry because it's just such a brutal, ruthless industry. And I knew it even then not even having been in it. I was just like smart enough to be like, yeah, I'm way too naive for that shit. Like, you know, it would just be no good for me. Like I would get up to no good, bad shit would happen to chew me up and spit right. me out, you know, kind of thing. I was just so, so it's fascinating. Cause you were like, you know, much more straight and narrow kind of kid and like really goal oriented, you know? Mm -hmm. And even for me, I think about coming out of college and going into doing that was like, I couldn't even imagine. I was like, yeah, I'm going to like, I don't know, take my time and do what I do what I do. But right. it's interesting because in the long term, and I think we'll get to that here shortly, is you know, you started working on some pretty amazing stuff, doing some pretty profound things with some high name people, but you weren't getting the kind of gratification that you were ultimately personally creatively seeking, right? Right. And so but in the meantime, you worked with Guillermo del Toro, you worked with Tool, you did a bunch of cool stuff. Yeah, I didn't start getting the dissatisfaction till around two thousand when I um up to then, it was, you know, every show, you know, he, like I said, I was green, new in the business. Um, the Blob was so amazing, too, just to go back to that for a second, because it was so cool because it was all these guys I was reading about in magazines, you know, these big name guys like uh, at the time, like Brian Wade and um, Sean McEnroe, who was like an old Rick Baker guy. And uh, even Tony, I remember reading about Tony Gardner working on uh, Return of the Living Dead and doing the Half Corpse puppet. I mean, I'd see these guys in magazines, and now I was working with them. And then right, by, right. by the end of the show, I was like one of them almost, you know, because by the end, they had let me sculpt a few um, gags and be in charge. Tony let me be in charge of a few gags to where I was sculpting it, painting it, designing it. It was really cool. But, uh, you know, he got Darkman after that. He got Swamp Thing, the cable series. So it was like every 
time he got a show, it was like I was moving up as far as my reputation and, and something, you know, building my and your prestige within the within the the, the uh, tribe as right it were. just yeah getting uh, <clears throat> some kind of recognition and and um and i felt like i was climbing a ladder you know and mm-hmm. <clears throat> by the time i got to rick baker's because i after about 10 years we kind of you know the shop kind of got weird and tony and i had a falling out which is you know we kind of have uh, uh made up about that so it's all good but um we we had this falling out I ended up taking time off and uh, tried to start a digital company, a digital effects company, which we did a couple because I was starting to get into digital effects. And um, that that I realized was going to be more of the same, which is, you know, it was uh, a sort of service industry type stuff. I was thinking that at that time, you know, right around that time, I was getting a little bit... uh, dissatisfied slightly and um but so i thought you know maybe cg will be a different thing i'm i'm really excited about this i haven't you know done all everything cg is still new and i'm excited about it so maybe i should try that but i tried that the the business didn't do well enough to support itself i don't know how long maybe a year or so and was that uh, at the same time that you were creating disturb the normal or those at two different times in your life uh that was when i was doing stuff for, for tool. I did, you know, through the, through the, um, digital company, we did do the Anima tool, Anima video where I kind of headed that crew up and I started doing some digital video for them, CG video. So yeah, that was around the same time. Disturb the normal came later when I was, after I was on my own and, and decided, Hey, I got all these animations. Why don't I make some new ones and do a, um, a a DVD of it. Mm -hmm. Cause that was the original concept of disturb the normal before I even gave this stuff to tool. I had this idea once I started doing CG, it would be cool to do. And this seems kind of like almost quaint and a quaint idea now, but at the time it was, I'd never heard of anyone doing anything like it to where you do a looping CG animation and put that on a screen. And that's like a painting that's moving. That was right, the, the, right. Con- the concept. Weren't you even thinking like frames on them or something? Yeah, yeah. I was thinking, and it was flat screen. TVs were so expensive. It was cost, right, cost right. prohibitive. And now you could do it. And, and people <laughs> yeah, have done totally. it. Totally. People have yeah, done it of course, now. Of course. Where you just put a flat screen up and put a frame around it and it's a moving picture. Yeah. So, but at, you know, at the time it was, it was just. It's pretty could, groundbreaking, pretty yeah. far ahead of its time, certainly. Yeah. And, but now it's like, you know, you see gifts on online that are looping things. It's like everybody's <laughs> fucking saying. It's so obvious now, but I mean, but again, if you cast your, your thoughts back, I think even for younger people to think about what was going on during that era technologically, I mean, really that was the era that like CDs were like f- just becoming a thing and DVDs well, yeah, were this like. Was- Probably you know, not late, even not even a thing. Right. This is like around late nineties, I think, is when this happened. Right, right. Which yeah. is when DVDs were actually starting right. to happen. So another thing that I remember doing at the time that now I see all the time is do you ever see these gifts where they'll take a 3D image or even a real image and you take a picture here and then you take a picture here, right next to each other, like slightly off center, and then you yeah. and then you wrote you, you flash back and forth between the two and it makes it look uh-huh. like it's vibrating and three dimensional. It gives yep. it like this three dimensional look. I was yep. doing that back then when nobody was doing that. Cause I remember seeing a, a TV show in the seventies about this guy that was going to invent uh he was trying to invent three D video and he was he did that 
in the seventies where he put two mm-hmm. cameras next to each other and mm-hmm. it, and I was like, well, it looks like 3d, but it's all like all jittery. <laughs> but now again, it's like everybody, you see those gifts all the time. It's just one of yeah. those things. But anyway, um, where were we at? You were getting, well, we were talking about your digital time. Oh, and you right, started right. up this new company and you did the Anima video. Yeah. Yeah. So we did, you know, some makeup effects for the Anima video and, um, I'd work on stuff stink fist a little bit we did anima and then what was the other one after that uh schism schism yeah yeah schism a lot of the tool stuff was done while i was working at the creating that company and it was done through that company actually and didn't uh, you say working with them was like breakneck too just like hardcore pushes like major hours yeah it was like my first 36 hour day my one and only (laughs) at the last the last day of shooting so but then after that I went to, I think it was after that. It was around the same time, maybe. I don't know. But I, I, I got an offer by my friend Bill Sturgeon, who is an old Rick Baker guy from American Werewolf in London days, who also worked on the Blob. But, you know, he's one of one of my uh, best friends in the in the business. He called me up and said, "Hey, do you want to work painting ears on the on uh, uh, the Grinch movie that they were doing with Jim mm. Carrey?" And mm-hmm. basically there was hundreds of hundreds of extras rubber ears. And I just had to paint flesh color and a pink color airbrushing, just hundreds of these things. He's like, it's, you know, it's definitely, you know, beneath your you know, ability, but it's a good in to get into Rick's. And I was, and I was at that point, it was, you know, the business wasn't making a lot of money, the, the digital business, digital and makeup effects business. And, um, so I was like, okay. So I, I did that, and uh, then I ended up. Then that their painter Tom Gilliland, who was the guy that trained me, kind of he was the painter. They're bringing me in because he was leaving to start Sideshow Collectibles, and Sideshow Collectibles mm-hmm. is huge now. He owns the business. It's like you know a multi million dollar company. So he left effects uh, to do that and sort of train you know transitioned to me. So then I was the painter there for the the rest of the Grinch and I did some stuff painting on um Nutty Professor 2 and then Rick got Planet of the Apes and it was the design phase where they let people, you know, sculpt design maquettes and mm-hmm. uh so I got my chance to sculpt and um then they kept me in the sculpting department just so then I did a bunch of stuff for uh Planet of the Apes and then he did Haunted Mansion and I was, you know, by then I was a sculptor there and designer and stuff. So it's funny though. Cause the first, the, the reason I went to Rick's is like, I can get my foot in the, the door to hopefully get it, be a sculptor or, you know, get a climb up the ladder at Rick's. And, um, the first sculpting job I had at Rick's actually was before Planet of the apes where bill comes back and he's like, well, there's a, a sculpture that you can do, but it's going to be, uh, it's supposed to look like a bad, a bad Halloween mask that, that uh, the Grinch wears when he's trying to look like a who character. So it can't look good. It has to look bad. So my first, I'm like, Oh, I'm finally getting a chance to sculpt at Rick Baker's and I have to make something that looks like a shitty mask. <laughs> so I sculpted that. It was kind of like, uh, but anyway, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. So, so then what came after Rick's, uh, then Rick's closed down, which was crazy. I was there for the, the, the big shutdown when he finally shut the doors and was like, I can't, you know, the, the budgets aren't there anymore because bricks was like the old, old model of makeup effects 
where where there was a big crew of like 50 to 100 people. There was a huge space. There was tons of resources, tons of time. It was really an amazing experience to be able to work on a project for, you know, a year. It's it's great. And to do R&D, you know, that's the way it should be done. But, of course, because of the big makeup effects boom um, of the, you know, after anything, once it started getting to the 90s, the shops were all competing with each other and underbidding each other. And it just kept getting worse and worse. So once one shop says, oh, we can do that for half the price and half the time, because they were just de- new shops were just de- desperate to get jobs. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they'd be, you know, the, the uh, uh, production would be like, well, this these guys did this job for us for half the price. Why can't you do it? So then it just kind of lowered the whole. Mm-hmm. what is standard time and money needed to create these jobs. So it mm-hmm. brought the whole industry down all this competition. And um, so Rick was like, I'm not going to deal with that because you know, why would he, he was already rich mm-hmm. and um, he, you know, it wasn't any fun. It's like not fun to do jobs like that. So he shut yeah. the whole business down. So it was really crazy to see these lifers that had been working at Rick's for like 20 years and expected to have jobs their whole lives just get let go suddenly. It was, it was a weird time. It was really, really kind of a historic thing to be, to, to witness. And I'd only been there, you know, five years or so. And so I was, I had a distance. And at that point I knew I was going to try and get out of the industry and do fine art. So I was able to see it from this very clear, non-emotional perspective. And it was just, Mm -hmm. I was, I felt like I was an observer watching this, which was really interesting. But after that, I ended up going to uh, Spectral Motion, where I worked on uh, all kinds of stuff. What did I do? How, was it? Yeah, Hellboy 2, I worked on there. I did the Chamberlain for that. All kinds of stuff. We did, oh, the uh, Fantastic Four. Um, just a bunch of stuff. And I did that for five years. And then I was kind of transitioning. The whole time I was working there, I was painting on the nights and weekends and trying to get my art career. And then I find they find it's like you had the best of both worlds though, because working at spectral, at least you were working on cool ass shit. It's not like you're working on the Grinch and the Eddie professor. You're working on like cool shit stuff. That's cool. You know, so you're getting that fun, but you're also in your own world. I thinking, okay, but I'm moving towards this career and the thing that's really my passion, but at least you had like a stopgap measure that was somewhat enjoyable. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was cool. The stuff at uh, spectral was great, but there, there was great stuff at Rick's too, even though, Planet of the Apes ended up being a terrible movie. It was it was really fun sculpting the the ape stuff because the cool thing about Rick's it's like they gave you the time to do it right, mm-hmm. uh, which is really nice. And then Haunted Mansion, even though that was a utter piece of shit, <laughs> it, it was I had that was one of the most fun I've ever had on a show because you know they they basically gave us they let us go this they had a skeleton crew that was waiting for the money to come in. It was me, Mitch Devane, Matt Rose. Maybe maybe one or two other people, maybe, in the art department. It was mostly me and Mitch, I remember. Uh, nobody was there because they were working on other shows, so people were off working on other shows as well. But we knew Haunted Mansion, this huge show, was going to start. And they let us go to the archives of Disney and go and get their folders full of all the original photo color photocopies of all the original haunted mansion designs and photographs mm-hmm. behind the scenes. They basically let us check those out of their little library and work from them. And 
there, Bill, Bill Sturgeon, who ran, uh, basically ran Rick's shop was like, you know, just do whatever until we get the, the money coming in, just do whatever you want, <laughs> which nice. is crazy. You know, do, yeah, like do yeah. maquettes and designs of the famous characters of Hunter Mansion. They don't know what they want yet. So just, so we got to just sculpt all these cool concepts and it, it was really cool. like kind of disconcerting to not have any direction you know <laughs> but it was super fun oh my god it was so much fun it was like how much how much of what you guys did during that time did they actually use um let's see i don't even remember i mean they, they it was probably half the stuff maybe or a little less yeah. i don't know yeah. yeah a lot a lot of stuff went unused of course but that's the way it goes when you're designing um i ended up being my the big thing i did on that um was i was in it for a moment as a ghost which you can see where i sculpted my own makeup which was kind of cool and um same with planet of the apes i was an orangutan in that i need to get those clips i need to cut those clips out just to post yeah them yeah you should interesting but um, uh, the the main thing I was involved with was it was great because Binky got work there too to do the uh, the zombies and those zo zombies in that movie are so cool. So I was sculpting the zombie heads and then Binky Binky was building the the suits and constructing everything. So um, a lot of it was just sculpting zombie stuff, which is just such a blast. You know, these old <laughs> decrepit zombies. I had one. And this is back, in, and, and don't forget, everyone who's listening, this is before The Walking Dead. So this is like old school, like yeah. guys that, that, you know, all those guys that are doing The Walking Dead were influenced by people like Chet Zar. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> Actually, Kevin Wozner, who is one of the big on-set makeup guys, I think the lead makeup guy was, was at Rick's at the time, I think. Cause that's uh, where, that's where I met him, but he was in the mold shop, I believe, or in the foam sh department. And now he's like, keen. I'm just saying you're ahead of your time. You know? <laughs> well, thank you. But there was one, one, there's some of the zombies. I don't even know if it shows up, but there was one that was so cool where I, and maybe it doesn't seem like that big a deal now at the time it was so cool and I'd never seen it before, but I took the, you know, I sculpted the zombie head mask and the, probably the top teeth, it went over over the actor's mouth, and the top teeth ended right, uh, uh, right above the chin. So it looked mm -hmm. like there was no chin. And then I got uh, I sculpted a jawbone, like a jaw with lower teeth, and then I connected it on one side with a little piece of wire, and then dressed it to look like fleshy skin. And it was just hanging mm -hmm. there, and uh -huh. there was nothing where the mouth was. So when you'd walk around, it'd just be this hanging jawbone, dangling. Off. Yeah, nice. it was so cool, so cool. <laughs> It was like it was, like, and that was in Haunted Mansion. Yeah, yeah. There's a. I, see, I never saw that film. Ah, uh, it's so bad. It's so bad. It's worth seeing. By the way, I never saw yeah. it. I also haven't haven't seen uh, the Planet of the Apes either. Ah, oh, it's so bad. Oh, terrible. There's a lot of the movies you've worked on that I haven't seen. Actually, uh, terrible. But the, you know, Haunted Mansion is worth seeing for the sets and the makeup effects. Yeah. The sets were. I, I went on set one day and it was like, holy shit, this is incredible. It's just amazing. Bag loads of cash. It's amazing they will put so much money into, you know, to make everything perfect except the script. You know <laughs> what I mean? The most important aspect of it. Right. I right. remember, and then I remember, you know, it was so, it's so weird at that level of filmmaking. Because I remember when I was shooting my stuff where I was the ghost in Haunted Mansion, um, there was a second unit director. And the second unit director, like, will shoot visual effects sequences or elements like if a hand's coming in 
and grabbing something, something they don't need a whole crew for. That's what the second mm-hmm. unit director does. And this dude was this young kid and he was sitting there. He was such an asshole. He was sitting there playing like a Game Boy the whole time. He wasn't paying <laughs> attention to what was going on. He's just like the spoiled little rich kid is what it reminded me of. And he's just like, had this attitude like, ah, like I don't want to be here. And he would direct things. Okay, do this. And then, it, you know, just go back to his Game Boy. <laughs> it's crazy. But, but the, that, that brings me to the point really of why I wanted to leave the industry because there's so much of that bullshit around, yeah. you know, I'm sure I've said this before, but around, you know, I think it was around 2000, I had been working with Mitch Devane, the greatest sculptor in the business and the most cynical bastard ever. And <laughs> hilarious dude, too. So, so one of, one of, he's really a, a great, really good friend of mine. I love Mitch. And everybody, people who know Mitch, everybody loves him. He's such a good, great guy. But he's so cynical about the business and all the bullshit. And he started, he was always complaining about everything in the business. And so he, I started thinking about it. You know, I thought it was great. This is because it is. It's a, as far as jobs go, makeup effects is a great job. It's a great job, you know, compared to most other jobs. And I was still very kind of enamored with it. And then he started going, you know, started pointing out all of these things that were just driving us nuts that I'd sort of gotten used to, mm-hmm. you know, like the comp, you know, the artistic compromises and spending all this time to make something sculpt this amazing piece and then have them make you change it at the very last minute. And then you have one day to change it and, and it looks terrible, but you have to do it anyway. Just, it was that stuff over and over and assholes like that second unit guy I was mentioning, you yeah. know, just, and, and also getting treated with, with, without respect. I mean, when I got to Rick's, I remember when we you going on set with Rick, uh, on planet of the apes, it was, it was so weird because everyone was like, Ooh, they respected us. The crew respected wow. us because it was Rick Baker, but all the other shows, you know, we're like grunts. They're true, you know. Look where they place the credits of makeup effects. Usually, it's like yeah, yeah. below craft services, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so all that stuff started. I really, I started seeing the kind of the the bad side of it, and 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 realizing like, yeah, this is really kind of fucked up. Um, and and I know I've said this a million times before, but the one thing I remember that really hit me was. Um, and Mitch kind of clued me into this as well, is that you're sitting there, you're begging your client to to make something good, and they're telling you, no, you have to make it bad, which is, you right. know, they're not using those words, but they're saying it has to, you know, this has to appeal to nine-year-olds in this de- demographic, and so it can't look like this or this. And then you you know that you're artistically, because you know more than these guys about the art aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. And you're sitting there arguing with them, please let me make your thing good and they're saying and you know this is like i said that's not the words used but in essence it comes down to please let me make this good thing you're hiring me to do and them saying no i want you to make a bad thing i want yeah. you to do it crappy and yeah. and you know we weren't in it for the money we were in it because we thought it was we loved it we're into yeah. it we've been yeah. doing it since we were kids so that was really soul crushing and i'm sure that's like that with any commercial art job you know yeah. art commercial art jobs are just like that so you know, then it was around 2000 and I started thinking about, um, you know, maybe I can get into, <clears throat> maybe I could be a painter and get into fine art because Juxtapose magazine was just starting to get big. Mark Ryden was, was coming into public view and, and I, I saw, got his book and I thought it was amazing and they started thinking about it. 
And so then I started once, then I made this decision, okay, I'm going to do this. And then I just started going for it and painting every day, painting every night, teaching myself how to paint. I was painting it at lunchtime at Rick's. I had a little easel set up on my workstation. Cause I was just like, you know me, when I decide I'm going to do something, it's like, I go <laughs> fucking 500% until it happens. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Why is it that you're so worn out again here <laughs> recently? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Can't help myself. I'm obsessed. Yeah, I know how it goes. I am too, so I am not taking cause. <laughs> right. This is probably the slowest I've gone here, so sitting here talking. Yeah. Yep. Well. Well, anyhow, so, but let's let's talk about some of your famed work with uh, with Guillermo because you just like briefly mentioned the Chamberlain, but you did a lot more than that. And I think that the story is actually quite interesting. The actual story of you kind of getting to have free reign on whatever level. I think that people might find that interesting. Yeah, that was cool. I think the only times that ever happened was with a tool video and with Hellboy 2, where the director said, do whatever you want. Of course, it's subject to their approval once you do the thing. But um, right, um, on the, the first Hellboy, I, I I was like I was kind of like a, I wasn't a primary guy. Like Matt Rose was in charge of everything. It was really amazing, great great uh, artist. And you know there was I painted all the horns. Um, I sculpted his right hand of doom. Which was cool because I love sculpting. That's awesome. Yeah, I love sculpting uh, cracked old rock. It's so much fun or concrete. Look, I love that. So I got to sculpt that and paint that. And um, uh, the 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 part of the movie where he has no shirt on, Hellboy has mm-hmm. no shirt. There was like a it was a sculpted suit. It was all muscular, and Matt sculpted that, but he needed help with detailing it because it was like hand pour everywhere there was every little pour was sculpted in Mm -hmm. so we were both like double teaming that one and and putting texture in and it was it was a super time crunch i remember matt sitting in a chair because he was just exhausted um and he was holding a sculpting tool and he like started fall asleep and i like caught him so he didn't fall on the ground (laughs) It was crazy. He was going to fall out of his chair of exhaustion. Um, so I did that. I painted the the Hellboy horns, the the long horns that he broke off at one uh-huh. at one point. And uh, I'm not sure what I did beyond that. I remember I painted the the horns with oil paint. That was my big innovation. Like I did. Uh, oil paint and oil paint medium so you get this translucency but looking back to it i could have totally used acrylic uh mediums and gotten the same effect (laughs) probably (laughs) um but but, you were at least trying to be innovative yeah yeah definitely and then and then at uh hellboy 2 i i I was uh working at spectral motion and it was totally by chance that i worked on hellboy 2 because i went Right around after, you know, after that, Rick's shop closed down, and then I went to Spectral Motion, and um, uh, Hellboy 2 happened a couple shows into my tenure there, and uh, it just happened to come into that shop, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, so, but Guillermo knew me from Hellboy 1, and he knew my work, and I think he was buying my work at that point, Uh. so um, he... uh, he uh, that he uh 
so he liked my stuff. So he was like, there's this character called the Chamberlain. Just do, you know, whatever you want. And I did my first design maquette. It was the King's right hand man. who's barely in the film, which I loved working on those characters (laughs) because there's so much less scrutiny and you can do what you want for when you're doing background. It's like planet of the apes. I did all background characters pretty much. And it's great because nobody gives a shit. The director doesn't come in and say, oh, change this. The producers, the McDonald's people don't come in and say, oh, it's not going to work right for a Happy Meal toy. So you've got to do this. <laughs> so, yeah, you're kind of left alone with the background stuff or stuff that's not on screen all the time. So I was super stoked to do that. So I did a, a, a Chamberlain maquette and Guillermo's like, let's do it. That's great. Just do it. I was like, uh, okay. Oh, that the only qualifications was it's going to be on doug jones um and we need his mouth as part of the makeup the rest of it can be mechanical so Mm -hmm. i just sculpted you know around his mouth and built everything up to be this weird mechanical mask and it ended up looking kind of like one of my painting characters that's so badass yeah and it was super fun and then bikey was working there and he did the costume for it so it was really 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 fun super fun and then i did the cathedral head as well which was really fun but that was yeah that, that looks like that must have been a very difficult sculpt yeah it was weird though the way we did it it was it was um that was designed by uh mike mignola the creator of hellboy the comic and oh, so wow. I, was, yeah, I was working from a, a, a sketch he did and uh actually let's see i sculpted the head part in clay and then i modeled this is back in the early days of 3D printing as well. So that was like a big thing. It's just starting. And I modeled the church or the cathedral part in Lightwave, my 3D program at the time that I was using. We had that printed in, and it was, you know, res, in this weird resin. Um, you can get it printed in anything, pretty much any material nowadays. But back then it was like, you, had to, you know, there was two ways of doing it. There was buildup or there was this laser resin technique. And um, so then we got the, the, the printouts back and they were kind of warped a little bit. You know, they, everything didn't come out perfectly, I remember. Yeah. And so then we molded those and did clay pours where we poured clay into the mold and then and then cleaned up the clay sculpture for... Oh, cool. Yeah, and then just detailed the clay sculpture and... Um, yeah, and it was it was it was cool. Put a little, had some one of the mechanics put a little light in it, so there was lights in the windows. And I did the Mr. T stained glass window. I've told you that story before. Where <laughs> we did stained glass windows in the cathedral, and when I was searching online for uh, stained glass images to print out on acetate, so that the light would shine through, I found one someone had made of Mr. T. <laughs> so funny and i just thought that was so funny and the windows are so small you'd never see it yeah so what we stuck that in the um the back the back window Guillermo, i told Guillermo, and he was he cracked up he thought it was great that's that's like a common thing too in effects where people sculpt in little things like i've heard of people easter eggs yeah yeah exactly i've heard of people saying writing like fuck you whoever the producer is if they hated in in like a in in a creature suit that looks like you know that's all lumpy and you can't tell you sculpted it in or yeah, yeah. on the blob. I remember sculpting a hamburger and the guy, it, there was a scene I did of, or a, a, an effect. I did a little Eddie, this little kid that gets melted um, in the sewer. 
and his arms were up, you know, sculpted in the up position because he was kind of jumps out of the water. So you kind of sculpted in that position. So there's not any weird wrinkles. And I remember sculpting a little hamburger in his armpit. (laughs) So funny. And you could totally see it if you looked. I mean, it was like, you know, a couple inch hamburger sculpture. Uh, but you'd never see it in the movie, so that that's right. a thing that happens a lot. There's yeah. all there's always little you know, and and where it, where it allows you know, makeup effects people are. Well, that's also, usually have honestly, a good sense of humor. Con- construction people do stuff like that too. You all know, right, it's right. like you don't know what's written in between your the the joists and your walls. You know, that's behind true. the behind the plaster and stuff, man. Yeah. yeah, seriously, I've I've heard all kinds of stories from construction people about people leaving weird shit in walls. And, <laughs> seriously, it's I don't think it's just like case specific because I mean, even me, I mean, of course, filmmaking is very much akin to the aspect of effects making, you know, because they kind of go hand in hand. But it's like even when I made I like to paint monsters, of course, I had to like hide cool little things in there. Right. Like, of course, you have to, you know, it's like it's fun, it's fun. you know, <laughs> and if no one and you, even if you do it where you know that no one's going to even make the connection ever, it doesn't even matter because you see it and you made the connection you know what i mean mm-hmm. but then there's also ones you can sneak in there where like no one's gonna figure out what exactly it is like they'll see it maybe but they won't really be able to figure out what it was yeah. that they saw you it's know just, and then there's the obvious ones where like they actually could discover it and figure it out so it's like riddle making you know on on multiple le- levels yeah. it's just, it I mean, just when i started pointing them all out to you you were like you did you put all that shit in there it's, like, yep. <laughs> it's just a way of having fun you know yeah, behind exactly. the scenes so exactly. Anyway, you're interviewing me, so what's the next question? Well, I don't know what the next question <laughs> is. Uh, well, you already talked about why you wanted to leave, so and but you haven't really talked too much about that process. So how, how much were you working in the special effects industry over a period of time, and when did it ultimately taper off to the point that you didn't have to anymore? Okay, that's a good question. Um, so I started, I remember around 2000, I was like, okay, I'm making the decision I'm going to do this. It was 2000. It was, uh, I've told the story before, but it was in the, the planet of the apes makeup trailer. One of the makeup trailers where I was sitting all day and I had to paint, uh, 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 uh gorilla and chimp or chimp hands. Cause there was big fight scenes with, um, uh, armies to fighting or something. I don't remember, but they would every, you know, few hours they'd break from shooting and then they'd have the chimp gloves that you know or these sculpted fingertips and and um ventilated hair pieces they'd bring them into the it was the paint trailer actually i think they'd bring them to me i would go with some paint and i would touch up where the paint had been rubbed off so i was sitting there for 12 hours a day with you know working a couple hours uh to um a day maybe to touch up these things. And um, so is just sitting there doing nothing for most of the time. And it was super boring. So boring. It's so boring being on set for the most part. Uh, I, I never, once I got on set, it just became, you know, once I got over the thrill of it, it's like so boring being on set. Oh my God, because you rarely do any work. It's mostly sitting around. So anyway, I was painting. I had a little sketch pad. I painted this, I thought, well, I hadn't decided to be a painter yet, a fine art painter. And I thought, well, I know I can draw. I know I could paint a little bit. I got some acrylic paints here. I got nothing to do. So let me just paint a painting and see if it looks good. And if it does, then I will maybe pursue this thing. And then I painted that painting called One. I called it One because it was kind of the first painting I ever did 
in that you know with that intention of being a fine artist and uh i painted now it. we know now we know what the image is for the week there you go <laughs> um and since it's been tattooed on a guy's back all his whole huge, back beautiful. uh dylan i think it's mcclary yeah dylan mcclary isn't it right yeah right. i think it is yeah yeah sure. yeah yeah i think so yeah it's so cool to see that but um uh so after that i was like okay i know i can do this because i did this i did this painting um and so i started like i said teaching myself how to paint in oils and i didn't know how to do it and um i started reading books i started practicing i started um just learning everything i could painting on my lunch hours painting on at night when i got home from work painting on the weekends and then um adam jones's ex-wife had a uh at the time she Adam did, Jones the, from, the from guitarist tool. of Tool for people who don't know yeah um, she she was doing let me see she did a a, a show with like a showcase with her band she had a band and she wanted um, artwork in the uh, in the lobby of the the hotel or not hotel the uh, theater and so um, I, she's like, do you want to have a show there? And I was like, uh, okay. You know, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing at all. Right. I, mean, I had barely painted anything. I really didn't even know how to paint it. I didn't know anything. I didn't know so, shit. So I just cranked out a bunch of my first paintings. Like, um, it's not one in the oven and cut Yeah, one in the oven, cut. Uh, bloody eyeball, bloody eyeball, the famous exit that no one has seen that I have packed my garage that I, I <laughs> which is the first interloper painting it's the interloper standing in a door and there's a little monkey looking fetus guy at his feet that's looking all terrified and he's standing in the story i gotta pull that thing out and take a picture yeah, of no it shit, it, huh? it's a it's pretty cool it's big too it's like a you know three feet tall and kind yeah, of yeah because that was one. i was struck by the size of those when i stayed back there in that that apartment because you had a cut up on the wall and you had a one in the oven right and so, and I was struck by how large they were. Cause you know, of course, as always, you're looking at shit on your phone. So. Right. So, uh, you know, I didn't know what I was doing and I just did it and they came out pretty good for my first paintings. You know, they were like pretty good. I'm, it, I'm telling you everything when it comes to painting, you have to know how to draw, you know, cause I knew how to draw. I could draw well at that point. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't know anything about I knew the basics of color theory about mixing complementary colors and stuff like that, but I didn't know about mediums. I didn't know what the good paints were. I used a lot of crappy paint on those, like cheap uh, student grade paints, because I didn't know any better. And I had I actually gotten my wife's grandmother died, and she was an artist, and she gave me a bunch of her. She, I guess, they gave me her painting supplies. So there's a lot of oil paints in there, and um, so yeah, I did that. I did that had that that was kind of my first show and i don't know if anything sold that night but it was still it was like my first show and it was really exciting and um somewhere around there i did the disturb the normal dvd as well i started doing that and i started doing digital work because of my friend cam de leon who's the original tool artist guy he he was doing digital digital prints and selling them so i was really started doing in uh, digital artwork and creating prints. I was basically following his lead because he was sort of, you know, showing how it's done and I was, and he was really helpful with information and stuff. So I, I was doing digital stuff as well. And I was like, 
I didn't know which way to go. I was just feeling my way through it. Um, and then I started doing the cannibal flower shows and actually speaking of Kevin Wozner, who's the, the, the onset makeup lead on walking dead. He was the first mm-hmm. person, he was the first person to ever tell me about cannibal flower because everyone knew I was starting to learn painting at Rick's. I'd become mm-hmm. friends, become friends with everybody by then. And he's like, yeah, there's this thing called cannibal flower. It's this monthly group show. It's really cool. You should check it out. And I remember nice. going, yeah. And I, and at first I was kind of like, yeah, whatever. Like I just, for some reason it didn't, I don't know if it's because it was a one night show. I would kind of didn't really look into it because he told me about it months, like probably six months before I ever showed there. He kept telling maybe me it about was the, it. Maybe it was the same syndrome that you had with your portfolio trying to get into the uh, effects world as a right. kid, you know? Right. I was secretly, <laughs> secretly chicken to, to yeah. do it. Probably, probably. So, but, but once I started showing there, I don't, I don't remember the first time I showed there, but once I started showing there, I really started meeting people. I was going, I started going to gallery shows meeting all these people, gallery directors, other artists. I started showing at Cannibal Flower and I started selling here and there. I sold that one in the oven painting, I remember. Um, another one I want to redo because I think that's a cool concept. Um, it could be done way better, but it did sell and stuff. You know, it was slowly, I, was, I had sold things and then uh, I was kind of floundering on what direction to go. It was all dark, you know, at the time still. <clears throat> very influenced by cam de Leon because he's you know art he's like an art, artistic genius for sure he's really amazing um but but i i finally did the the oval uh portrait of this character dunce and you know i hit hit this other level and found this format that was appealed to people it was easy to relate to you know mm-hmm. some of the other stuff i was doing was just I don't know. It wasn't that, I don't know. Just what, it wasn't all, all the way there. It was a little scattered, you know? And so right. I did that, showed that at, at cannibal flower. And then I think Gary Pressman bought it immediately upon seeing it. Cause it was like 300 bucks too. 11 by 14 <laughs> ovals, which brings us full circle because my next show, the fear is all 11 by 14 ovals. I'm like yeah, coming exactly. back to that, which is kind of fun. The first time I've done these since 2005, 2006, 2007, I think is when I was doing these oval portraits. So that's kind of cool. Well, aside from the exhaustion of it, you are you enjoying it? Are you having fun doing the ovals again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, I love it. It's great. I love you know doing what I'm doing right now is my comfort zone. It's these head and shoulder portraits. I really enjoy them. I really enjoy the texture and the wrinkles. And um, I, I'm you know if I if I had more time, it would be a lot more fun. But it, it is still when I get in the zone. I mean, I can't complain because it's like I put a movie on on the TV right next to my easel <laughs> and I paint monster heads. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, how much better could it possibly be? Uh, I guess, you know, if having time and not a, a huge pressure and the whole thing about I got to make all this money on the side while I'm painting, yeah. you know, that's difficult. But anyway, so if they, they started selling, then I did the next next month, I did another, I did two more of the oval portraits because that one sold so fast and there was like, people came to the show and wanted it and it was sold right away and they couldn't get it. And I just kept going with the, the uh, monster portraits and they all sold. And I just kept going with that painting during the day. And I'll, I know we're getting to the end uh, up at an hour point. So I'll, I'll uh, we could maybe good pay, place to end is this where I was able to leave the industry. And uh, I don't know if I did I t- sell, tell the story in the documentary with the shamanic tendencies story. 
I don't know. Or just is tell it a, it. a bonus feature? I'll tell it anyway. I've told it a million times, but I was at Spectral Motion. I'd been working there five years. I was one of their lifer guys, and then they laid me off, which is, you know, it happens from time to time. And the way they lay, lay you off in the film business is they say, it's Wednesday, Friday's your last day. <laughs> you know, that's how it, <laughs> that's how it goes. Um, everybody's used to it. So I, at that point, I, I was uh, heading up their digital department at Spectral Motion. I kind of worked my way into doing, I was doing a lot of digital design, design work and Photoshop and also um, some digital effects because I was trying to help them get into digital effects as well. Mm-hmm. And so I was sort of running that little, uh, the little clean room in the back with the computers. And so they told me, you know, you're, you're, it's, it was, a, I'm pretty sure it was a Wednesday and they said your last day is Friday. And so I was like faced with, okay, do I, things were selling, but they weren't making enough money to, you know, make a living off of at that point. And that they weren't matching the movie money. That's for sure. Cause I was making yeah. pretty, pretty good money there. And so I thought, okay, do I, do what I normally do every time I get laid off, which is immediately file an unemployment insurance claim and then mm-hmm. try and look for other work. And then you get, you know, you get your unemployment while you're trying to look for other work. This is how it goes. Everybody does this. And I was like, okay, or should I try and do the fine art thing? And, you know, we had just bought a house. I know at least it talks about that in the documentary. Yeah. You know? yep. And, um, but so I'm in the computer room doing my work, thinking about this. I just got the the word that I'm getting laid off, and then within 15 minutes, an email comes in because I have you know access to my email because I'm working on a computer. And this guy, uh, uh, Chad Harrian, uh, right? It's I get Chad and this other guy. There's another guy who's a fan that's called, named Harrington, Chad Harrington. Yeah, there's a Chad Harrington and a Chad Harrion. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's Chad Harrion. Um, he emails me out of the blue and says, hey, I just got my tax return back. I've never bought a painting before, but I have to buy this shamanic tendencies. I have to buy uh, it. Nice. I don't. How do I do it? I've never bought a painting before. And it was a $3,500 painting. And I was like, oh, that's my sign. That's the, that's the sign I need. <laughs> yeah, so right. because of that, because he emailed me and bought that painting, I made the decision to go full time with it. And I, I'm, I, uh, I didn't look for another job. And then I just hustled my ass. And here I am today, practically dead of a, a exhaustion. <laughs> an, ar- an art attack. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the verge of an art attack. <laughs> I'm on the verge of an art attack. <laughs> So that's the story of my art life. And well, then, then the next question to close it out, which which is a moving forward question, is having had all of these experiences in the film industry and having had an experience from being a young person coming into it, feeling yourself out, moving up the ladder, jumping from different shops, trying all of the different trades, working with the big wigs, ultimately to coming back to your own creative center, but now manifesting with me and other people around you this thing called dystopia. You know, if you got, let's say that you had an opportunity to make that into something bigger, w- knowing what you know about the film industry, w- how would you approach that? I mean, what do you think is the best platform or venue for that? And and would you want it to be something that was indie or would you want to try to, you know? You yeah, know yeah, I know what you're saying. It's tough. I mean, it seems to me I've always taken the indie approach. You know, the only time I've had 
experience with the the machine is in the film industry because at one point i was doing i did designs on a uh, photoshop designs for this dumb animated chicken movie at warner brothers <laughs> and that was like that was working in an environment where all these illustrators and cg guys were like in this union and making big money and union hours and union rules and you can't work these people this long and double time and golden time and all that stuff wow. and it was a completely different environment and um and i you know i i i that uh i i liked the money but i didn't like the environment it was super corporate Mm-hmm. I mean, as far as I still got to dress the way I wanted to and this and that, but it was just the corporate bullshit was so thick. It was really like, it was kind of difficult because there was just, oh my God, that's, uh, we, we really will do it. We should do another part two to this. Seriously. A part two? No. Because <laughs> there's, you know, we can get into more specifics. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, because I haven't heard this story because it sounds like a good one. Well, no, I just it, yeah, it's just in a nutshell. I just watched this the guy who was running the department. It was a cool guy who was kind of in charge. I watched him convince a producer who was a bit you know this rich producer dude, executive. I should say I don't know about a producer. He was an executive from Warner Brothers. Oh. I watched him. This one guy did this amazing drawing of this chicken, and then this other guy did this terrible drawing of this chicken. And I watched this. Got the guy who was in charge of the department convinced this executive that the bad drawing was the good drawing and the good drawing wasn't as good as the bad drawing. Wow. And I watched him just nod his head in agreement and not even have a clue what he was looking at. And so, you know, when you get into this up to that level, you got these guys are like, you know, investment banker backgrounds. They know nothing about art at all. Right. Um, you know, and also I, I remember one of their top guys there, and I'm, you know, I've never been an anti, I'm, you know, I'm a liberal dude. I've never been anti-union, but there was a guy there that was like on the top of the food chain, uh, this old vested union dude that just so abused it, so abused. He sat around and watched TV every day, and he sketched once in a while. He walked around to all the different apartments and took stuff out of their refrigerators. <laughs> You know, wow. got food out of, you know, other people, just food, anything that was free, he would leave and go teach a class in the middle of the day without permission and make money doing that. And then he was so lazy. It was like, it was the reason people don't like unions, the legitimate yeah. reason people don't like unions. Yeah. So I was the whole thing. So I, I guess I would say ideally indie, I'm an, more of an indie guy. I would prefer to go indie, but. I just I can't imagine handing dystopia over or not handing it over, but just having, you know, sure, millions of dollars behind it. But then a bunch of dumbass executives goons. Tell, telling you t- dummies, you yeah. know, not goons like dumbasses telling yeah. you how you, I would I, I would rather not make the dystopia movie. There's got to be a there's got to be a boat in the middle, right? So that these guys can ride motorboats. It's it's the thing. Or, it's coming back into yeah, vogue. Right. Or, or, monsters need motorboats, buddy. Or black magic can't have a gun because of the you know climate. You know, you know what I mean. It's got to be a knife or whatever. It's got to be ten percent less scary. Black magic yeah. got to be ten percent less scary because we got to market them and we got a killer deal with Burger King to do these toys for the Happy Meals. 
So that's seriously, I'm not even joking. I believe so, you. That's that's precisely why I didn't go into the industry at right, all, right. <laughs> ever. So so I I kind of think I would rather it be a smaller thing that was more indie. But look at Lord of the Rings. And more intimate. Look at Lord. I mean, it happens sometimes. It's just it really rare. Look at Hell. The Hellboy movies are great. Yeah. And those were or the Harry Potter movies, right? Harry Potter, Potter's Harry Potty is amazing. Harry Potter Harry movies <laughs> are great. So it is possible, and of course, ideally, that would be the ultimate thing: uh, have millions right. of dollars behind it, and, and full creative and license. full creative control. But right. I, you know, you can't depend on that happening. So I, like I said, I would rather it be not happen than be perverted uh, the way well, the Planet just, of the Apes was or Haunted Mansion was. No way. Just, Let's just put it out there to to anybody that's listening. If you have a million dollars, all we need is just one. Just just so we could do a little vignette. Just we want to just do one little vignette. Not even a big thing, but you know, we've got ideas cooking. You know, it'd be a short, like a short artsy thing, you know. You just all we need is like a million bucks. If you want to see one of these vignettes that Chet and I are cooking up, just throw it at us. <laughs> I think it could be less than a million personally, but hey, a million would be great. Well, let's make it let's make it as amazing as it can be because the first one it's important, you know, you can't you right. can't half sell the first thing. You got to go all the way. Right. Make a good blueprint. Yes. Well, I hope everyone has enjoyed listening to the the trials and tribulations of Chet's uh, dramatic art life. Yes. And we I, I I do think, you know, we we should do we should follow up with a part 2 that's a little more in-depth you can stories tell, you can tell some of the stories that you told on the last one that we didn't publish right, right. that we didn't tell on this one because you were being more politically correct than you were when you went all out last right, time and talked right. about other people going all out <laughs> yes i did i still you know that yeah there was good stories mixed in with those stories that i i felt like great. i thought they were all great they stories. were all great stories Chad is very careful because he's well, prudent in his course of action he doesn't want to unnecessarily offend anybody it's well, not I, I don't it's it's not even i don't want it's not even even the assholes I'm worried about is offending as much as I don't want. I know, you know, I wouldn't want someone telling this story about me publicly, so I wouldn't want to do that to them. Basically, yeah. I get that. You know? yeah. So anyway, yes. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's preaches right. The, the great chat. <laughs> so yeah, we'll do a part two sometime, and uh, I guess that's it. Thank you for for uh, taking the role of interviewer for me. It was helpful. Yeah, for sure. Oh, and I, I noticed the other day I was just doing some searching online, and we're actually uh, starting to get some pretty good uh, Google hits for the Dark Art Society oh, podcast. Cool. So that means that people that are listening are actually doing what we're asking them to do, which I'm going to ask you to do again. Uh, rate and review, review us, please, on whatever platform you have found us on. And, and if you can, the best ones for us, of course, are iTunes, because iTunes, uh, being Apple, they, like uh, Mc, like Burger King and McDonald's that run the film industry, uh, these guys run the podcast industry. <laughs> iTunes, baby. So if you can give us a rating and a review, it really helps us. It also helps more people to find us and ultimately for there to be a greater reach. So thank you again for all listening. We appreciate it. Yes. Yes, and thanks for the shares. And yes, please do share, rate. Shares are important. People are still finding out about the podcast. I still tell people to this day, two days ago, I told someone yep. about the podcast. They're like, I had no idea you had a podcast. I had no idea, yeah. And we're like tw- 25 episodes in or whatever. So any, any, you know, we would appreciate it. It, it will just benefit the podcast. We'll be able to yep. get, you know, it will benefit you to share it, you know, we're not making money from this thing, but, 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 uh, more what brand awareness of it 
more people knowing about it will allow us to do cooler things with it. So uh, we appreciate it. Yes, if you like it, it's it's your way of actually not having to pay money to support us so that we can continue to provide this free service. Right. I mean, I love it, but, it, you know, again, it is something that he and I have to coordinate, and it, it involves technology and time and energy and, uh, you know, platforming and money and copy and advertising. And, you know, all of that stuff is actually quite costly. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, even if, uh, uh, yeah, especially in time so thank you yeah love you we appreciate it we'll catch you next Wednesday on another episode of the Dark Heart Society podcast alright goodbye